0: I doubt this morning that I have to spend very much time convincing you that evil is real. A couple of years ago, while I was in South Africa with two other brothers from our church, I witnessed with my own eyes and with these two other brothers human trafficking. We had these two young boys that couldn't have been 10 or 11 years old come and they they, they approached us, and they asked us for milk and bread. They were wearing nothing but rags. I mean rags. And they came, and they asked us just outside of this little convenience store if we could provide for them milk and eggs, and or milk and bread. And we, of course, went inside the, the little convenience store there, and we bought them milk and bread for, for nothing, and, and we gave it to them. And the man that we were with, we went back outside the store, and he, uh, he said, I want you to watch what happens now. And so he sa- and we watched as these, this, these two little boys went outside and they went behind this convenience store and they ran what was behind this semi-truck trailer. And as they, they, they began to run, as they began to run, a, a larger boy who was probably in his late teens, early 20s began to chase them down. And Steve, the man that was with us, said, that's the pimp. And he said, now I want you to look, and I want you to look behind this trailer. And behind that trailer, there were no less than a dozen, dozen and a half young girls. And they were as though they were in a military formation with their hands behind their backs, standing at perfect attention, shoulder to shoulder. And he said, all of them, blatantly and flagrantly in the public, are waiting to be purchased. He said that the South African government had recently done a study and research on all of the the girls in South Africa that were this way, and on all the girls that they surveyed, 100% of them came back as being HIV positive. 100%. Steve says that the way that these young girls are, are brought into sexual slavery is they are... They are targeted because they are, most of them are in abusive homes in particularly uh, desperate situations, impoverished in these townships. And so these pimps go and they find them in these places and they, they offer them an escape with a chemical dependency, a drug. And finding them, they, they give them this drug for free and then immediately, once they're addicted and hooked, they take it away from them. And they say, Do you want this? Did that help? Do you like this? The only way you'll ever get it again is if you come to work for me because they can't afford to buy it for themselves. And if you know anything about chemical dependence, you know they will go. And so they have them enslaved. And there is everything inside of you. Everything inside of you wants to go and fight. Wants to go and fight. You want to go and you want to take these little girls and you want to take them home because they're no different than my little girls. You want to go and you want to help them and you want to bring them into your house and you want to bring them and love them and hug them. You want to tell them that, that, man, there is hope in Christ and there are people out there that are not like their dads and not like their parents and not like the place that they've grown up. You want to come and you want to tell them not just about Jesus, but about the love they can find in your family. And you want to go and you want to fight these people that are doing this to them. You want to fight not just them, but the entire system of oppression. You stand there and you see it. you feel so helpless, paralyzed by the abject evil that you're witnessing and the helplessness in that moment to do anything about it. Brothers and sisters, there is evil in this world. There is evil in this world. Some of it is flagrant like that. Some of it is more subtle, but there is evil in this world. And that presents a, a problem, not just for the Christian worldview, but for every worldview that that exists. For the Christian worldview, the, the problem of evil typically goes like this, and if I'm, if I'm honest with you, I would tell you I believe this is the most intellectually difficult problem for the entire Christian worldview. It has been the most intellectually difficult question for me to answer, and I, I'm going to tell you on the front end, we're not going to answer all of the question. We're not going to come up with an entirely intellectually satisfying answer here today, but I'm going to tell you it's the best. You compare every worldview, you take every other world system, and you compare it to this one, they don't have a better answer. But the problem of evil goes something like this. If God is all-powerful, then God can prevent evil. If God is entirely good, then God would want to prevent evil. But evil exists, but evil exists. And so is God not all-powerful and unable to prevent evil? Or is God not entirely good and unwilling to prevent evil? What is the answer? It's a big question, isn't it? It's a big question. And as we've said last week, big questions need big answers. And we can take our big questions and we can take them to Jesus Christ. We can take them to the Word of God. Because in the Word of God, we find that God is truth, that Jesus is truth. And He is not taken back by our questions. He is not offended by our questions, that the truth has nothing To hide. So if you have your Bibles with me this morning, would you go to, to, not Genesis, Isaiah chapter 45? Isaiah chapter 45. Again, in this series, we're going to do something a bit abnormal for us here at Iron City. We're going to be jumping around a bit, but we're going to start this morning at Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. We'll begin in verse 5. When you find that, would you stand with me this morning? Isaiah is kind of in the center of your Bible. first of the major prophets. Isaiah chapter 45, we'll read verses five through seven. And this is God in the first person speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And God really has some shocking words to say about himself. Listen to what God says. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. If I'm honest with you, I have problems with this text. If I'm honest with you, I have have both philosophical and personal difficulties with this text. And it's not just this text. I could have selected actually a few different texts to have have used this morning. But but I, I I have both philosophical and personal difficulties with this text. Philosophically, I have difficulties with this text because I don't want God to say that. I, I, I want to exonerate God from any responsibility toward calamities. I want to exonerate God from any responsibility or any ordination of things like the tornadoes that we've witnessed, from typhoons that we've seen, from, from evils that I've witnessed like I described earlier. I, I, I have philosophical difficulties because I want to exonerate my God from any responsibility or any, any uh, admission toward any, any involvement with any of those things. It, from a philosophical standpoint, I want to say that God has no involvement, but God himself seems to not share my desire to exonerate himself. But I'll tell you, more than a philosophical difficulty, I have personal difficulties. I have personal difficulties. My personal difficulties are that I've suffered. I've suffered. I've suffered at the hands of evil in this life. I've been betrayed by people that I love. I've been hurt by people that I love. I've been sick unexpectedly and missed months of my children's lives. I've not been able to hold my little girls. I've watched as Family members in my house have been sick. I've counseled as a youth pastor across the table from young junior high girls that have been sexually abused and I've wept with them. I've wept with some of you that have went through unimaginable hardship as you've buried your children or or went through things in your marriage and in things in your life that can be categorized as nothing less than calamity or evil this side of of death. You faced brokenness and calamity in your life, and that's personal to me. And so when when God says I make well-being and create calamity, and the word create is actually the stronger word, He says in there. He says just before that, so He says um, I form light and create darkness. The word create, the, the the verb before create, the stronger before darkness is the stronger verb. The, the, he says I make well-being and create calamity the word again the stronger word that word create is, the, is only used with God it's the word bear it's the word used in Genesis 1 it's only used of God so when God says that it's hard for me to hear because I've sat in the emergency room waiting room when people found out that somebody they love tragically died And so I want God to say that this is outside of him in some way, that He is not responsible, but here is God, and he's saying it. Because here's what God is saying. God is saying, I am the controller of all of these things that you see, the full spectrum of the human experience. I am the controller of the light and of the darkness. I am the ruler of the good and of the hard everything that you've known, everything that you've experienced, your best day and your worst day. I have been the ruler. I have been the ordainer. I have been there for it all. None of it is beyond me. None of it is outside of me. I am ultimately over everything. In fact, notice what God says. In case you were doubting it, in case you were wondering it, He bookends it, doesn't He? He bookends it. He says in verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. At the end of verse 7, he says, I am the Lord who does all these things. You know what God is saying? These things are the things that make me God. These are the things that make me God. The fact that I am the ruler over all of this, the fact that I am the controller of all of this, the fact that I am the one that ordains the light and the dark, the fact that I make the good and the calamity, the fact that I control all, rule all, ordain all, that is what makes me God of all. The word calamity there, it is actually the very strongest Hebrew word to mean things that are bad, things that are ruinous. Most often in Hebrew, it is translated as the word evil or wicked so God is saying, I create that. I I make that. You know, you might think about the story of Job, right? That was what I started, when we started with the word this morning, I started at the end of Job, the the good part of Job, the part of Job you really want to get to, 42 chapters in, right? But you might want to think about Job chapter 1. The Bible says that Job is an upright man, that Job is a good man, that Job is a God-fearing man, that Job loves God with all of his heart and has favor in the eyes of God, and that Job is a prosperous man, that everything that you can say about Job is a good thing to say, that Job has wealth, and that Job loves his family and has a, a beautiful family. In fact, Job has seven children, and Job prays for his children, even sacrifices for his children. And yet at the the instigation of the enemy, at the instigation of Satan, Satan brings hardship and calamity by the permission of God into Job's life. So much so that calamity hits Job, and in an instant, Job loses his entire livelihood, all of his servants, all of his flocks gone, his wealth, his prosperity in an instant eliminated. And no sooner does he find out about that, but in the very next instant, he finds out that a great wind has swept up and has come across, and that his entire family, this family that was so beautiful and a treasure to Job, that all seven of his children were apparently in a harmonious relationship with one another and were dining together, and a wind has swept up and has collapsed the house in on itself, and all seven of his children have died. A calamity like none of us could ever even imagine. And you know how what Job says? The Lord had given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, the good, the light was made by the Lord, and now this darkness has been made by the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And perhaps we might be be apt to say, "Job, you better not attribute that to God. Job, you better not attribute your hardship to God. You better not attribute the death of your children to God. That was the devil that brought that into your life, Job. That was the instigation of the devil, Job. You know what the narrator, the author of the book of Job wrote the very next verb, uh, the very next verse. It wrote, he wrote And all the things that he said, Job never sinned with his lips. Job never sinned with his lips. In other words, what Job just said, by giving credit to the Lord, by praising the Lord, even though the Lord had brought calamity into the life of Job, that Job was right. And Job was true. And Job was good. So that brings a hard question, doesn't it? That brings a hard question. That if God is the ruler of all that is bad, and God is the ruler of calamity, and God is the ruler of all the hard things that we experience, and God is the ruler of all the things that Job knew, perhaps we even say the ordainer of all of those things, and I think we can say that because God Himself is saying that. Does that mean that God Himself is evil? Does that mean that God is morally culpable for the moral hardships that we face? Does that mean that God is morally culpable for the, for the wickedness that you and I face? Is God morally culpable for the, for the flagrant evil that I saw that day when I witnessed human trafficking or the sexual abuse that I've counseled people through or the betrayal that we face or the hardships that you face? See, that's where it's important for us to not take one passage of Scripture alone. Th- that's why God has given us not one verse or one book, but the entirety of our Bibles. For, the, for we have to take one verse and place it in, it in the context of the entire revelation of God himself. For God has revealed himself, not simply in Isaiah 45 or in the book of Job, but God has revealed himself in, enti- in an entire canon of, of, of Scripture. And so what we're able to do is place those verses within the entirety of God's revelation so that our theology of God and our understanding of God and our understanding of the providence of God and our understanding of the issue of evil is not, does not become unbalanced or unhealthy but instead we're able to see that there is a, a grander narrative in play here. There is a bigger picture in play that allows us to place this thing where it's supposed to be so that we can see that this is actually playing out to a glorious end and a beautiful end that is going to leave every single one of us singing even as a result of the evil that we see and the evil that we know because listen to what it says in first john 1 5 first john 1 5 first john 1 5 would you turn there with me 1 John 1.5 says this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Do you hear what he's saying? So, so in 1 John, John is likening goodness to light and evil to dark god is likening goodness to light and evil to dark so he's saying can 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 good can light and dark coexist in the same place you can take the dimmest light you can take the most the most dull candle the f- most flickering light and you can place the most flickering light in those piercing darkness And the most flickering light in the midst of the most piercing darkness. And the darkness doesn't stand a chance, man. The darkness doesn't stand a chance. That wherever there is darkness, light always triumphs. And that wherever there is light, darkness cannot coexist. And so what, what John is saying is that God is good. And God in His nature is good. And God is totally good. Entirely good. God is good in motive. God is good in essence. God is good in attitude. God is good in desire. That everything that is good in attribute, everything about God that you can describe, is good and it is totally good. So there is no darkness in Him it is, at all. Darkness, bad, evil. None of it can coexist within the nature of God, within the essence of God, within the character of God. So there is no darkness in him at all. There is no good in him at all or evil in him at all because God is light. He is good and there is no bad in him at all. So, what we have to do is we have to reconcile Isaiah, 40, Isaiah 45, 5 through 7, with 1 John 1, 5. So, what we might say is this is that God rules over evil and good, but God is good and not evil. God rules over evil and good, but God is good and not evil. That is that all goodness that we know, everything that is good in our lives, everything that is good in our world, everything that is good that we have seen, everything that is good that we have experienced flows from the very nature of God, from the very essence of God. Everything that is wicked that we have experienced, everything that is evil that we have ever beheld comes from some indirect way that God has ordained or permitted to happen. So, so, so God, is, God controls all things, but not all of those things come from God directly. He may permit all things, but only good comes from the character of God. Only good comes from the action of God. So why does God allow evil? That's the question, right? Why does God allow evil? Why would God not just create a world in which there was no bad? Why would God not just create a world in which there was nothing evil, in which there was nothing, in which there was no pain and there was no strife and there was no diff- Why would God allow any of those things to happen? This is gonna be my premise. This is going to be my premise. That God permits evil only because by permitting its existence, it brings about greater good for his people and greater glory for his name. That God permits evil only insofar as permitting it brings greater good for his people and greater glory for his name. God permits evil only because it will bring greater good for his people and greater glory for his name. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 45. I want you to see this. Genesis 45. So this is the story of Joseph. This is a story that actually begins in Genesis 37. So I want us to see how this kind of fleshes out. We're going to to look at two different stories. So so the story of Joseph, if you've never read it, is really a fascinating story. So, So Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob or Israel. Right? There's 12 sons of Israel. That's where we get the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so ele- he is the 11th son of Jacob, the 11th son of Israel. He is the first son, though, of Rachel, the beloved wife of, of Jacob. But he is the favorite. Y'all ever had that in your house, right? Like, not in my house. My mom and daddy, they loved everybody equal because they're here today. They, lo- they loved all of us equal. That, you know, they loved, they loved all three babies. So that didn't happen in our house. That's not happening with my little girls. But but y'all may know of a situation in y'all's house. I've never seen it. I don't know what that looks like. But y'all may, in y'all's house, know somebody that loves so- that just seemed like, maybe on the outside looking in from your perspective, where it looked and appeared as though there was a favorite, okay? In Jacob's house, there was no question. uh, Joseph was the favorite, and everybody knew Joseph was the favorite. Well, one day, God gives Joseph a dream. And in this dream, God shows that Joseph, that all of his brothers one day are going to be bowing down to him. Now, remember, Joseph is the second youngest among 12 brothers. Now, I don't know how much y'all know about sibling rivalry. I don't know how much y'all know about having brothers and sisters. If you're an only child, you don't know nothing about this. You just need to just sit there and be quiet. But if you've got brothers and sisters, you're going to know what I'm talking about. If God gives you a dream, and if you're young, you need to just listen to me right here. If God gives you a dream, and it shows all of your brothers and sisters bowing down to you, You should keep that dream to yourself. You you should keep that dream to yourself. That's not going to fly well at the Thanksgiving table. It's not going to go over good because you know what it's going to say? Here's daddy's favorite with his big head and his Ivy League, whatever. Come on, tell us again, Joseph. How great are you, right? So Joseph goes to his brothers and he tells all of them, hey, you know, God gave me another vision. You're all going to bow down to me. Isn't this awesome? Isn't this wonderful? Well, that flies over like a lead balloon, right? Like, like just about the way that you would expect it to. And so one day they go out to the field to work in the field, and the brothers decide, you know what? We're done with dad's favorite. Things were a little more cutthroat back in those days. And so they decide they're going to take Joseph out. Like they're going to eliminate the problem. They're gonna, he had this, this like multicolored coat that his dad had given him. And so they're going to take the coat. They're going to dip it in animal's blood. They're going to take it back to their dad and say, look, he animal got him. We don't know what happened, sorry. We turned our back one second. Mama's boy, he's gone, you know? Reuben is the oldest brother. He's the oldest brother, and as oldest bro- I'm the oldest brother, and we are typically the most level-headed of the group, okay? <laughs> not the favorite, just the most obviously, in Reuben's case, not the favorite, but just the most level-headed of the group. And so Reuben's like this, you know. I know a bad plan when I hear one, this is a bad plan. And so they're like, so so Reuben's like, let's just throw him in a pit collect our thoughts. And so Reuben thought, I'll throw him in a pit. I'll come back, get him later. You know, later once everybody else is gone, I'll restore him back. It'll be fine. So, so he, t- he takes him, he throw him in a pit. They don't kill him. But then Reuben goes away for a little while. And while Reuben's gone away, a group of Egyptians come away. And then the younger brothers are like, you know what? That old guy, Reuben, he's smarter than we give him credit for. We shouldn't kill him we should sell him into slavery and then dip it into animal's blood and tell dad, we can profit off of this, make a little coin, go down to Vegas. This will all be beautiful, man. Every, this is win-win situation, right? Joseph's not going to die. Win for him. We're going to make money. We're going to get rid of our problem. This is beautiful. So they sell him into Potiphar's house as a slave. God profits Joseph while he's in Potiphar's house joseph ascends and in those days to be a servant in a in a wealthy egyptian house could actually be a good thing and and so uh, joseph ascends to become the most uh the most uh high-ranking servant in all of potiphar's house well the bible says that joseph is what we call a handsome young man a handsome young man he was a looker right a looker so Potiphar goes out of town, and apparently Potiphar's wife noticed how handsome this young man was. And the Bible says that she wants to lay with him, right? So I'll let you read between the lines on that one. And so, Repeatedly, Joseph refuses her advances. And he knows, man, if I get caught, first of all, it's a sin against the Lord. Second of all, it's a sin against Potiphar. And Potiphar's going to take me out if I get caught with his woman, right? And so eventually, she corners him. And so Joseph does what any God fearing man ought to do. And he runs like a wild Apache out of the house. And she takes him by the coat. And she's standing there and frustrated by his rebuke, she screams. And she fakes as though he has attempted to rape her. And she tells that the other men that he did not run away until she screamed. And that here is the evidence that he tried to rape her. And so again, it looks like, man, things just can't go right for Joseph. Finally, he's betrayed by his own brothers. He's sold into slavery. Now things seem to be doing okay where he thought his life was going to get somewhat back on track in Potiphar's house. But now even that has gone awry. Even though he's doing all the right things, nothing is going right. You ever been there before? Wickedness after wickedness after wickedness. Calamity after calamity after calamity in Joseph's life. And so he ends up in jail, and he's in jail, and he's cellmates. He's cellmates with the cupbearer and the baker from Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh had gotten frustrated with some of the people in his court, and he had sent them into jail. And both of those people had dreams. They had these crazy dreams. And they, they, were, they were perplexed by these dreams and one of them interpreted and, and Joseph said, well, actually the Lord, he's, he's gifted me in interpreting dreams. Let me interpret them for you. Hey, cupbearer, in three days you're fixing to be restored into, into the king's house. Baker, not so great news for you. But cupbearer, if you would just remember me when you go into Pharaoh's house, I would be much appreciated if you tell the Pharaoh my kindness to you. Of course, the cupbearer forgive, forgets. Again, Joseph's doing all the right stuff, but it seems as though God is absent and God is distant and God doesn't care. But then, many days later, maybe months later, Pharaoh has a dream. He brings in all the wise men of Egypt. None of them are either willing or able to, to interpret the dream of Pharaoh. Pharaoh. And then the cupbearer remembers when nobody else could tell what his dream was, that there was a man that he met in jail that he had long ago forgotten, a man by the name of Joseph, a Hebrew. That had properly interpreted his dream. And he tells Pharaoh. And Pharaoh sends for Joseph to come. And Joseph interprets the dream of Pharaoh to say that there are seven years of prosperity in which you are going to reap in ways that you have never reaped before. And it's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And you need to build storehouses so that you can store all of the things that you have so that then when the famine comes, you'll be able to sell to all of the neighboring countries and you'll be able to have prosperity in Egypt when in the midst of famine and you'll increase Increase wealth while everyone else is withering away. And Pharaoh makes Joseph the second most powerful man in all of the world. Now that would be a good story, wouldn't it? But it gets better. Because you see, one of those neighboring, one of those neighboring countries was the land of Canaan. And that was where Jacob and his people were. And when the land of famine came, they began to get. Things began to get dire for them two years in, and they thought they were going to starve to death. And in starving to death, what you have to understand is that the covenants of God and the promises of God to Abraham, all of that was in question. The Whether or not they were going to become a mighty nation in the land that God had promised to them, all of that was in question. And God seemed absent, and God seemed distant, and God seemed as though he wasn't going to keep his word. And God seemed as though he wasn't going to keep his promise. And Jacob is there, and he's wondering, what are we to do? Except that he heard. He heard that there was food in Egypt. He heard that there was food in Egypt. Not knowing how the food came about, thinking that his son was long dead, he sends his other sons in a caravan down to Egypt, keeping only his youngest son, Benjamin, with himself. He sends them down to Egypt. And when the boys come in, Joseph immediately recognizes them. I want you to read in, Genesis 45, 5, what Joseph says. He says, and now, this is his brothers before him, after the great evil they have brought into his life. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. You see that? Now let me ask you something. Did God force them to hate their brother? He didn't do that. They wanted to do that, right? That was their desire. Did God force them to throw him in a pit? God didn't take over their body, put them in a trance, and turn them into robots. They wanted to do that. That was their desire. Did God... Force them to do something they didn't want to do when they sold him into slavery? No, he didn't make them do that. Did God force Potiphar's wife to make advances toward Joseph? God didn't force Potiphar's wife to do something that she didn't want to do, but God was in the background, brothers and sisters. I don't know about you. I don't have control over my dreams. I don't have control over my dreams. And God had Reuben there in the time to preserve Joseph's life and Reuben gone the day in the moment to make sure that he was sold at the right time. And God had the cupbearer and the baker there at the right time and God gave the baker and the cupbearer the dreams at the right moment, didn't he? And God gave Pharaoh the dream at the right time and God allowed famine to come and uh, prosperity to come at the right time, though, didn't he? So God actively never brought about evil. He never did evil to anyone. It was the brothers who did the evil. But God, in the background of providence, permitted evil so that it could work about so much so that in the end, Joseph would look back and said, you may have done evil, but God sent me here. In Genesis chapter 50, he would say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. None of this is without purpose. None of this is aimless. None of this is accidental. None of this is incidental. All of this is on purpose. God, in the background of providence, is ruling over this tapestry, and God is weaving it together with the threads of providence, and he is taking all of your evil intentions, and he is manipulating it together for my good, and for your glory. See, God permits evil so that he can manipulate evil through his grand providence for our good and for his glory. God rules over it, knows about it, plans it, ordains it, leverages it, uses it, organizes it, rules over it so that he can be glorified through it and by it and from it. See, there were two apparent evils here, weren't there? There were two apparent evils. There was the evil of the betrayal of Joseph by his brothers. And there was the evil of Israel was going to be, Israel was going to die of famine and starvation and the word of the Lord was not going to come true. And in both of them, it appeared as though God was absent and that God didn't care. But in the background, God was manipulating the the wickedness of man and the evil of the earth and the brokenness of the earth so that ultimately Israel would be preserved and Joseph would be utilized so that the redemptive plan would be preserved so that ultimately through Israel, Jesus would come and we would be delivered and his name would be glorified. If our enemy can't get your heart and our enemy can't get your soul, he'll settle to have you think a little bit less of our Lord. If he can't have your salvation, then what he'll do is he'll work in your life to undermine your confidence in the goodness of God. So that you'll begin to think, God won't answer my prayers. He's just gonna do what he's gonna do. He'll work in your life to think, you know what? Everybody else around me has joy, but I don't have joy. God must not love me as much. God will work in your life to say, you know what? Obviously, his hand is not upon me. His favor is not upon me. I'm not as good as they are. He'll, he'll work in your life to undermine the goodness and the and the confidence and the peace that you have in the Lord. But brothers and sisters, do not mistake the silence of God for the absence of God. Because in the background of providence, even in the midst of calamities, even in the midst of apparent wickedness and betrayal in your life God though is permitting it is manipulating it to work it out for your good and for his glory so much so that by the time you get to chapter 50 in your life you can look back over the history books and say what they meant for evil God meant for good turn with me now to Acts chapter 2 Acts chapter 2 I think Acts chapter two is one of the most insightful passages in all of the Bible on divine sovereignty and human responsibility on a single verse. Acts chapter two, verse 23. I'm gonna try to land this plane right here. I would encourage you to underline this verse. Acts chapter two, verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus, this is in the midst of Peter's Pentecost sermon, of course. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of god you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men so what i'm wanting to drive home is that god he deals with goodness directly he brings goodness into our lives through the direct outpouring of his very nature the very outpouring of his very essence evil comes into our lives through indirect god deals indirectly with evil and he's going to Use evil ultimately to bring good into our lives and glory to his name. So what do we see right here? Maybe we would say, did God kill Jesus? Did God kill Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? Did God murder Jesus? God ordained the murder of Jesus, which is the greatest evil that has ever happened in the history of mankind, Right? And God ordained the murder of Jesus, which is the greatest good that has ever happened in the history of mankind, right? That is the paradox of the Christian faith. That is the paradox of the Christian faith. And so what does he say? He says, you killed him. You killed him. You murdered him. And and, and did Caiaphas do what he did not want to do? No, Caiaphas wanted Jesus to die. God did not inhabit Caiaphas. Did Pilate? Do what he did not want to do. He washed his hands. He, but ultimately, Caiaphas gave in to the will of the people because he wanted to give in to the will of the people. Did God inhabit the people and demand that they yell, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him? No, they did what they wanted to do. But it was not beyond the sovereign planning and ordination of the Lord. Jesus is not plan B. Jesus was not the emergency plan when everything went awry in the Garden of Eden. It was the definite plan of God before the foundations of the earth that God would send His own Son. Maybe you would say that how in the world could God plan a world and design a world and build a world and put me in a world that He knew there would be suffering and here would be my response to that, that God built a world and designed a world and engineered a world in which he himself would enter into and suffer and can i ask you something is that not your absolutely favorite part about god is that not the most wonderful part about him what you you might be asking yourself what greater good can come of the reality that there is brokenness and evil in the world but if there was no evil and there was no brokenness you would not know what the word grace means means and you would not know what the word crucifixion means and you would not know what the word forgiveness means and you would not know what it means that the word became flesh and you would not know what the word what mercy means and you would not know what submission means you would not know what any of that means But because Jesus came and He emptied Himself and He willingly gave Himself up on the cross according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you know if there was no brokenness, if there was no sin, if there was no evil, church, I ask you, what song would you sing to God? There would be no amazing grace. There would be no Father, how deep the love for us. What song would you sing to Him? It's the very greatest things that we know about God is that our God will willingly come and die for us and give himself as a substitute for us and take our wickedness upon himself that he is a high priest that doesn't know our pain and our suffering from a distance. But brothers and sisters, we look to the cross and we don't just remember that our God came and suffered at the hands of evil men. We look at the cross and we remember that evil does not win. We look at the cross and we remember that evil is a servant of almighty God and that our evil will not last. Our suffering will not endure. That evil will be used ultimately to bring into our lives an eternal weight of glory. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So brothers and sisters, let us rejoice in our sufferings as Christ in his, because we serve a crucified Lord, but not only a crucified Lord, but a risen Lord. Let's pray together.